2: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to have with me Dr. Renee Provo to tell us all about his fascinating book titled Rebel Courts, The Administration of Justice by Armed Insurgents, published in 2021 from Oxford University Press, um, that investigates a fascinating question, are war zones actually lawless? Can rebels have laws and courts? Um, This book, it not only investigates a fascinating question, but does it through really useful methodologies that are going to be relevant to, I think, quite a wide range of us um, who are interested in war and related things. Because the book not only goes into serious detail about law and understanding the technicalities of it and the theory and the history, But combines this as well with deep dives into really recent and relevant case studies of where we can see in the real world um, rebel law, rebel courts, um, and all sorts of kind of contests and debates in the actual field around these issues. So it's an interesting book on a lot of different levels. Um, And Renee, I'm very pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about it.
1: Thank you, Miranda. Thank you very much for the invitation to uh, speak about this book on the uh, the New Books uh, Network. And um, so, yeah, this is a this is a book uh, that I've been working on for uh, many years. It took me about something like uh, five or six years to write uh, this book, uh, which I produced as a, as an academic. I'm a professor at the Faculty of Law, McGill University in, in Montreal, uh, Canada, where um, I teach, among uh, other things, uh, international humanitarian law and international human rights law, which are uh, two of the areas of international law that are central to to the analysis. But I also teach uh, various legal theory course and legal anthropology, which speak to the more general outlook uh, to how we think about law and also the methodology that uh, has been used and the the kind of ethnographic turn that the book represents, uh, which is something that is uh, an emerging uh, dimension of uh, publications in international law these days. And I I situated myself within this, um, uh, this area. Now... Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, so, so rebel court speaks about the administration of justice by uh, armed insurgents, and this um, sets the parameters for the phenomenon that I became interested in. I came across this uh, so something like a decade ago uh, in a journal article uh, which looked at this thesis. Um, and, and examined the provisions of the Geneva Conventions to assess whether there could be a legal foundation for this action. And I thought at the time that this was an absolutely uh, incredible idea that armed insurgents could seize the mantle of the administration of justice and deploy it for, for their own uh, goals. But uh, beyond that, actually, didn't have much to say about it and left it aside until it occurred to me that the the article that was published, and there was a second one second one published uh, soon thereafter uh, by a British academic, uh, did an excellent job at interpreting the provisions of the Geneva Conventions, but on a basis that was uh, extremely uncertain. In other words, that when we were thinking about the rebel administration of justice, we really uh, didn't know what we were talking about. So very little is known uh, about why and how rebel groups administer justice. They create uh, courts, enact uh, laws, uh, and uh, administer justice and territory under their And so a first aspect that drew me to this project was the need to to, to find out more uh, regarding the practice of armed groups in administering justice. Of course, uh, this opened up a, a different range of questions that suggested that an analysis that is rooted in accepted standards of public international law is necessary but at the same time it is limited and that the question of the rebel administration of justice more broadly remained under uh, theorized. So this was sort of the initial impetus to uh, undertake this uh, this project and I happened to receive a, a fellowship from a foundation in Canada called the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation which was an extremely uh, generous award that gave me uh, funding to carry out research uh, in the field in various parts of the world and um, uh, accumulate a number of case studies which are one aspect of the books in which there is a a descriptive um, segment uh, explaining uh, what the, the FARC in Colombia Uh, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, the Taliban in Afghanistan, the Tamil Tigers in Sri Lanka, and uh, various Kurdish groups in Turkey, Iraq, and Syria, looking at how each of these groups approached uh, and implemented the administration of justice. At the end of the day, um, the idea of a rebel court presided by an outlaw judge applying non-state law uh, will probably strike many lawyers as a string of oxymorons, as a suggestion that doesn't make any sense. And it's important to acknowledge at the outset that um, the the public discourse by governments um, related to these groups is uh, wrapped up in the language of anti-terrorism. And these groups are more often than not, reduced to uh, bands of uh, criminals, uh, terrorists, bandits. And so the association of justice and law with groups like that is a frontal challenge to some basic assumptions that we as jurists have about the nature of law and how you know, it can be collectively implemented in a society.
2: Mm. That's a brilliant um, summation of all the different things that the book does. Um, Probably better than I would be able to do. Uh, So thank you for introducing us to the book in that way. Um, And given that description, listeners, I'm sure, can understand that we're not going to be able to get into every detail in the book. But hopefully we can do something of a highlights tour and do some of the theory and some of the examples and sort of um, take us through these really, in a lot of ways, kind of a different or new way of thinking. Um, and so to start off kind of with this idea of under-theorized and very much against what maybe the expectation would be um, from the point of view of lawyers and jurists, can you introduce us to sort of why and how you think legal pluralism can help us when we're faced with this idea of rebel courts?
1: Of course. And, and, and this is really a central pillar Uh, upon which the entire analysis is built. Because clearly, if we have uh, a narrower idea of law, this this would have been a much, much shorter book. Uh, But um, uh, as it is, I think it is possible to argue in favor of the usefulness of a broader conception of law as embodied in legal pluralism. Now, just to briefly explain... This concept because it's one that remains somewhat uh, fuzzy or mysterious for uh, for most lawyers, and, and certainly for uh, people who aren't lawyers. Most uh, most people, including most lawyers, uh, approach the idea of law from what could basically be described as a positivist uh, perspective. And there are a certain number of assumptions that underpin a positivist Construction of the idea of law. I'll mention four. So, a first idea is uh, monism. So, law is presented as a unified uh, regime that is internally coherent, where there might be incoherences, but these are uh, problems to uh, to be solved, and that the the legitimacy of law is in large part rooted in its uh, coherence. A second idea uh, underpinning positivism, legal positivism, is uh, centralism. And here um, the, uh, the idea is that law is uh, connected in an essential manner to the state and the idea of state sovereignty. So in order for something to be law... Properly so uh, conceived, it must be either an emanation of the state or, at the very least, uh, authorized or tolerated by the state. Otherwise, you know, any band of criminal can uh, declare that it creates its own uh, laws. A third idea underpinning legal positivism is um, positivism, and and here we're uh, condemned to using the same word. Uh, uh, in the explanation, uh, and and what that alludes, alludes to is the claim that uh, law is distinct from uh, fact, that it is possible to identify legal standards, legal norms and rules, which are then related to a set of facts, um, uh, uh, allowing us to obtain... Uh, legal characterization answers as to the legal nature of a given situation or how particular legal disputes ought to be um, ought to be resolved. In the United States uh, in many law schools in first year um, the students are taught what what is called IRAC um, uh, issue, rule, application, conclusion as the way in which law functions first you decide what is this case, what is this about then you identify the relevant rule Uh, then uh, you apply it to a set of facts and then you reach uh, a conclusion so it's a very syllogistic way of thinking about it and finally uh, legal positivism is uh, also grounded in prescriptivism so the idea that law is an external constraint Uh, imposed upon uh, a variety of agents with the aim of uh, changing or orienting their behavior. Uh, Legal pluralism challenges each of these four uh, assumptions, Um, and it claims that um, on on the basis of mere observation, law is fragmented. Uh, So law is not necessarily coherent across a regime or a system that incoherences are in fact a necessary feature of a legal order rather than merely uh, tweaks that are issues to be uh, dealt with. Law is decentralised, there are many sites in which law is produced and administered and lawyers' obsession with courts and judges. Um, hides the reality that there are many other ways in which all sorts of actors uh, invoke legal standards and apply them and in some ways uh, give them uh, substance. Uh, Thirdly, law is uh, contingent. And so this is a rejection of the suggestion that rules and facts are uh, kind of in different universes, and and that lawyers sort of uh, uh, weave uh, these two distinct uh, concepts uh, together. Legal pluralism uh, would rather suggest that uh, the content of norms will crystallize when these norms are engaged in a particular context. And before there is a given context, there is relatively limited Uh, fixed substance to a legal norms. Uh, And finally, law is uh, deliberative. So instead of law as an external constraint imposed upon agents, um, it's not so much of a command, but rather law corresponds to a space that is created for uh, a collective creation of legal standards. Now, if we have a vision of law that is uh, uh, defined according to these um, tenets of legal pluralism, of course, it offers a much broader uh, setting in which to situate uh, the administration of justice by armed insurgents and allows us to identify many more things as law and use the kind of analytical tool offered by law to interpret and eventually to, uh, to interpret these practices and eventually to engage with these actors. The, the problem or the, the challenge uh, of uh, the administration of justice by armed groups for lawyers is that if we have a narrower vision of law, essentially, we condemn ourselves to being irrelevant, to a very important practice, in fact, uh, in the lives of both the insurgents, but also uh, the civilian population that uh, falls under their authority. Mm.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Um, There's kind of already ways of thinking about this in terms of theory that you've outlined, which is helpful, and also a real practical need to think about this, to expand the thinking um, in order to really keep things, keep the work relevant um, and address things that are actually Happening on the ground, which is in fact what I would like to turn to next, um, is thinking about this obviously from a theoretical perspective. How do we fit this in? But also practically, how do rebels or armed insurgents um, sort of fit within the existing ways of thinking about law? And particularly, how do rebel courts? work within or deal with the fact that anywhere that they're trying to have legal jurisdiction or legal action has laws that pre-exist anything the rebels are trying to do with laws. So how does that work in terms of opening up space or kind of how how do rebel courts um, try and deal with the facts of laws they've not created?
1: Yeah, so it's um, it's really important to uh, not remain at the really high level of abstraction uh, that uh, animated my answer to your last question. So it's kind of highfalutin thinking that really doesn't tell us anything helpful about how to improve the protection of the victims of war. And, and for me, this is a driving concern. Uh, ultimately, I'm interested in a set of ideas if they relate to real life and and the lived experiences of uh, people affected by war, both combatants and uh, non-combatants. A very common way uh, of, of speaking about areas under the authority of armed groups is to describe them as lawless, sort of a far west kind of notion that laws disappeared and we, we go back to the state of nature and, and raw violence is the way that uh, these groups impose their authority. Uh, uh, an assessment of what's going on in real life in areas under the control of groups like uh, the Taliban or the Tamil Tigers or uh, other groups suggests that, on the contrary, the issue is not the, of the absence of law but an overabundance of laws. And uh, there are competing uh, legal claims being advanced by various actors and uh, rebel courts have to navigate these overabundance of uh, laws. And, this co- and, and, and the way that they handle uh, this multiplicity of laws is, you uh, know, uh, corresponds to a range of positions. Uh, And and what positions uh, rebel courts adopt is a reflection of the identity and the aspirations of the particular groups. And I'll give examples that hopefully will uh, highlight that. So there are some uh, rebel groups that are engaged in civil war against the state and create courts that simply use the laws of the state. And so an example um, of that is in Uh, Syria, where uh, the courts created by the free Syrian armies, or one of the the major rebel alliances fighting the uh, Damascus government, uh, are simply using the Syrian uh, penal code, for example, uh, because the the, the penal code, there might be some elements that they disregard, but in general, it is perceived to be not problematic. And so, uh, they, they don't have an issue uh, with that. Other groups uh, will invoke uh, other types of pre-existing laws, and the, you know, the, I think the, the central example there is Sharia, uh, so Islamic law, which is uh, claimed to be applied by uh, the Taliban and was or, was or is still uh, claimed to be applied by the Islamic State, uh, in uh, the limited areas that are still under its uh, authority. So here, we see that already we challenge our idea of what is law uh, and, and claim that, well, a pre-existing law isn't necessarily only state law. It could also be another kind of law, and Islamic law certainly uh, 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 merits the characterization of being a pre-existing uh, legal order. Um, a slightly different uh, version of this is uh, armed groups simply aiming to implement local customs. And uh, the, the FARC in Colombia during the Civil War uh, there uh, had a habit of simply you know, using um, popular assemblies to apply local mores, local uh, customs, uh, to deal with issues that, uh, that arose, um, uh, rather than, uh, you know, applying state law, for example. Also, they, uh, the reality, they also did apply state law in some ways. Finally, uh, we do have some armed groups that legislated outright, uh, in, uh, in some cases, in a very ambitious manner. And and the most uh, significant example, the most extreme example in this respect is um, probably the LTTE, the Tamil Tigers in uh, Sri Lanka, which enacted its own criminal code, its own civil code, code of civil procedure, uh, code of criminal procedure, land rights, um, Child Protection Act, and and so they they were quite active uh, in legislating uh, or you know on, on bases that were not necessarily derivative of uh, Sri Lankan law but they looked to Indian law German law Swiss law uh, and uh, and others the if you look at the practice of given armed groups uh, usually there will be a mix of all of that so I've already mentioned that the FARC uh, applied local customs but in some respect they applied the Colombian uh, civil Code, and uh, in addition to that, they also adopted their own uh, what they call the Código de Convivencia, so m- uh, m- manuals for living together. These were guidelines as to you know how to uh, how to uh, behave, uh, and they regulated uh, fisheries, hunting, uh, various um, other things. Uh, even ISIS, uh, the Islamic State. Uh, in you know it, it, uh, as part of its credo uh, it must apply Sharia in in a way that is unmediated by the group at the level of the substance of uh, the law the law being uh, given uh, by god but nevertheless um, ex- despite their extreme originalist uh, position they nevertheless regulated uh, all sorts of Uh, practices. So they had consumer regulation, uh, consumer protection uh, regulations. Uh, They had regulations about rooftop pigeon keeping and and so on and so forth. And they claimed that this wasn't legislation uh, in in a manner that would uh, offend the, the principle of the supremacy of Islamic law.
2: Hmm. Very interesting. And already getting into kind of the tricky practicalities of this, um, which is something that I particularly appreciated from the book that you, as you said, um, go into the theory, but don't shy away from what's actually happening and don't shy away from the complexity of it there. Instead, you bring it, bring us really with you to explore it um, and help make sense of it. So thank you um, for explaining that. Um, And I kind of want to now move almost to try and combine these two areas, the sort of theoretical and the practical, um, and go back to the idea that law is meant to be most of the time when we think of it, when we sort of think of traditional perspectives of law, quote, fixed, declared and stable. In your investigations, both in the theory and the multiple case studies, to what extent do you think rebel justice can ensure that the law does have these qualities?
1: Yeah. So there is a certain hardness to the concept of law itself, right? So that if, if you can't know what the law is, uh, is, is that really law? And uh, Franz Kafka, in a short story that uh, that he wrote uh, early in the 20th century called The Problems with Our Laws, uh, describes in his wonderful evocative way that only he uh, can conjure, uh, the... The, the torturous challenge of a society that is governed by laws that it does not know and, and the struggles of of trying to discern what the laws are. So this uh, this short story kind of renders in the clearest uh, terms the, the suggestion that laws that you can't know, laws that are not fixed aren't really law, they are just the exercise of arbitrary power by, a uh, ruler. So law can't be uh, invented uh, on the spot and correspond to the whim of of, uh, those in power. It must be both established, it must be fixed, and also it must be accessible to both the decision makers and also to ordinary people so that they can use it to guide their behavior. Uh, The way that states do this, is through uh, legislative assemblies, parliaments that enact uh, statutes by way of formal processes, uh, which are then published in an official gazette uh, so that it becomes a public document. And normally non-state armed groups don't have parliaments and official gazettes. Now, oddly enough, there is one example that I I talk about in uh, the book. The the Kurdish regional government in uh, northern uh, Iraq uh, does have a parliament and actually does have an official gazette that you can find on uh, the Internet. Uh, But this is uh, unusual uh, as an example. So the requirements uh, that uh, law be uh, established and accessible must be adapted and adjust it to the reality of rebel governance, which is less institutionalized and more fluid than governance by a state. So the criteria necessarily must be that there is some form of deliberate decision by the group to, anor- to adopt norms of uh, general applications. And uh, how they do that, well, it, it will depend on what's possible uh, for the group, given the circumstances, and what aligns with kind of the the, the ideology of, um, uh, of the group. Uh, there isn't, uh, it's not possible to claim that there is a need for democratic validation for something to be called law. I mean, obviously... This is a desirable source of legitimacy for law, but um, it is not, the, the, the concept of law uh, cannot be tied exclusively to democratic validation. Otherwise, we would have to conclude that in undemocratic states, there are no laws. And that doesn't seem to align with the way in which undemocr- undemocratic states like you know, North Korea, for example, are operating. Um, there, there are places where there are massive and systematic violations of human rights, but not necessarily places that have no law. So, um, how did state, how did uh, armed groups uh, do that? Well, uh, you know, it, it varies uh, enormously. The, uh, the Tamil Tigers, for example, had a legislative committee. That identified and drafted new statutes, and then uh, forwarded them to the supreme commander of the LTTE for his approval, and uh, further to it, further to which it became uh, uh, the law of the Tamil Tigers. Uh, the FARC, I already mentioned, adopted these. Uh, uh, codes of living uh, together, códigos de convivencias, uh, convivencia, and um, the way that they often did this was through uh, popular assemblies, where they discussed with uh, villagers, you know, what were you know the, the ways of doing things here, and, and the fox surely you know had its own views and and uh, oriented them or or even imposed some aspects. Uh, of uh, these codes of living together, but it was a process that was um, uh, collective in uh, some ways. How are laws uh, knowable? Well, you know, to stay with the FARC, uh, sometimes they would just put up a sign uh, or paint on the side uh, of uh, a wall in the middle of town, you know, what are the rules uh, that the FARC is applying in this area. Sometimes they would go into a town or a village and and leave pieces of paper in, in a cafe or a bar. And uh, let's just say that it wasn't a good idea for anybody to take away these pieces of paper, even after the FARC had gone, because they wanted to see these pieces of paper exactly in the same place when they returned. Um, or the FARC would close all the bars, tell everyone they had to come to uh, a meeting in the center of the um, of the village in, in a manner that was non-optional, uh, and the commander would simply explain, you know, these are the rules. This is the way that uh, things are going to happen from uh, here on. Um, to, to to go elsewhere, you know, the Taliban claimed to apply Sharia, which everyone was supposed to know, uh, and so there wasn't necessarily a need to publicize in any particular way uh, the rules that they um, uh, that they applied, at least that's the way that they, they presented it.
2: Hmm. Interesting to think about sitting somewhere and then someone comes in with a piece of paper and goes, this is going to live here now, um, and sort of really kind of emphasizes like what this is actually like to live with, um, that this isn't sort of just an academic problem. Um, And this relates kind of to what you then further contribute, I think, even to theory and understanding is an idea of what rebel rule of law can be perhaps broadly understood to be or some of the key parts of it. Um, So given kind of what you've just given us to build off of, um, what would the basic components of rebel rule of law be?
1: Right. So this is a, a central claim, that has to be interrogated. Uh, if, if, any, if anyone wants to look at the idea of the administration of justice by our group, is that you know can can it amount to something that corresponds to uh, the rule of law, or uh, is the, the suggestion of a rebel rule of law simply you know nonsense upon stilts to to uh, uh, evoke an old expression? So. Th- Part of the challenge here is that the rule of law itself uh, is is derivative as a concept of how states administer justice. And so there is a certain circularity to the concept of uh, the rule of law. And uh, you know, there are debates um, uh, in, in illegal theory about the, the specific um, definition to give to the concept of the rule of law. Uh, a debate that, that varies from a perspective favoring a, a thin rule of law to one that is uh, thick, and, and there are central characters in that uh, debate from Dicey to Lord Bingham to Lord Fowler to Joseph Raz that have you know, positioned themselves in, in different places. But um, what is central to appreciate with respect to the rule of law, is that it is aspirational in its essence. It can never be that any given society, no matter how fair and free and all of that it is, uh, no society can ever achieve the rule of law. So it's been described as a construct of desire. And I think that that is um, uh, an apt way of uh, appreciating the, the essence of the idea of uh, the rule of law. A second idea uh, related to this suggestion that the way in which we think about the rule of law is derivative of how states administer law is to point out that the state um, attempt to take over law is relatively recent and has always been incomplete. So even in places like um, the United Kingdom uh, or Canada or, or elsewhere, you don't have to go far in time uh, to, um, uh, to identify moments in which law wasn't necessarily particularly associated uh, with the state. So in the Middle Ages, law wasn't necessarily uh, the thing of uh, the state. In Germany, uh, it was... Um, uh, uh, often thought that uh, the prince couldn't uh, change the law, but rather was subject uh, uh, himself to uh, to the law. Uh, so there was, uh, you know, the canon law, law merchant, uh, and so on and so forth. Like different um, social uh, groups had their own laws, uh, including their own uh, tribunals, and it was uh, it was not problematic that. Uh, all of this was not authorized uh, by the state in some fashion. This became different uh, in more recent century when um, the state claimed a monopoly over the idea of law and the creation and application of law uh, within the sovereign jurisdiction of that state. So so this is a recent idea. It is also uh, a claim that was never fully realized. So the state never could get rid of all the other laws uh, in um, society. In in some places around the world, this is sort of stating the obvious. So in many countries in Africa and Asia, most legal problems are not resolved by applying state law uh, in state courts they're resolved by applying custom before uh, customary uh, entities, you know, tribal uh, courts, um, uh, uh, jirgas. names varies uh, here and there. So in in some countries, you know, it's estimated that more than 90% of legal issues uh, never connect with state law or uh, state courts. So... Uh, The state law uh, in that picture is on the periphery. So does that mean that the rule of law doesn't really exist in those places where, say, only 10% of issues get resolved by uh, resorting to state law and state court? I don't think anyone seriously uh, will want to say that. So the the concept of the rule of law has to be, I think, uh, reimagined in a fundamental way. So once we move away from uh, state law and state justice, the concept of the rule of law must be adapted to the nature of the actor and the context of its action. There is no point in basically saying that uh, non-state um, entities must behave like the state because they are not the state. So, so obviously it's, it's, uh, it's pointless to suggest that they should reinvent themselves as uh, the High Court of uh, the state because they will never be able to meet those expectations. So I try to, you know, uh, take this idea and uh, which is quite you know abstract and then back to uh, highfalutin uh, thinking, and then apply it in, in a more concrete way to what armed groups are doing. And, and try to figure out, you know, what does that concretely translate into? And in the book, I suggest that there are four elements that we can uh, identify as the, um, the building blocks of a rebel rule of law that allow us to differentiate uh, what some rebel groups are doing from you know, what drug traffickers are doing, uh, even though they might use the same language uh, sometimes as armed groups and I I note in passing that not rarely the armed groups are themselves involved in drug trafficking. Um, So these four elements are first, uh, that the administration of justice must be part of a broader system of governance. And um, law is simply one aspect of uh, public governance such that you couldn't have uh, an embodiment of the rule of law that stands alone as an island of uh, governance. Uh, Another way of expressing this idea is that in order for law to become real, for decisions of uh, rebel courts to be applicable, it must be associated with what sociologists called social capital. So it must be backed up by uh, a force that gives meaning and teeth and weight to uh, these decisions, which you're unlikely to have. Uh, without a broader system of governance. Secondly, uh, there must be a degree of stability and um, predictability. Uh, in part, uh, there's a normative dimension to this. It, it goes back to your earlier question about law being fixed, declared, and uh, stable. Uh, lawyers who are fond of Latin uh, will invoke the principle of nullum crimen sine lege. Uh, so, uh, so law must be fixed and lawable. There is also an institutional dimension uh, to uh, this criteria that uh, there must be stability and predictability. So if if you have laws that, I, I, that are identified but you've got nowhere to go with them, nowhere to turn to to say, can you have this implemented? Uh, it will not really uh, be meaningful in the sense that is required by. Uh, the principle of uh, the rule of law. So law, there have to be mechanisms to implement this, not necessarily a building with a big sign that says, you know, uh, uh, courts of the Taliban, uh, because this is an invitation for uh, the US Air Force to send a missile to destroy that building as they did. Uh, And then the Taliban stopped putting uh, such uh, signs but um, it could can, it can be more uh, fluid. And the reality is that uh, it's, um, as long as there's some form of accessibility, it, uh, the criteria can be met. So in Afghanistan, to remain there, um, there were people in every village with a phone number that you could call to put your case uh, on uh, the roll, as it were. And um, a Taliban judge would roll into town on his motorcycle and uh, adjudicate the cases that had accumulated since uh, his last uh, passage, hence the uh, label sometimes of a Taliban motorcycle uh, justice. Uh, in Colombia, there were uh, usually someone called the Mosca fly, who was sort of a contact point between locals and the FARC, that if you had an issue that you wanted the FARC to, uh, to come deal with, uh, you'd tell the Mosca, and then you know the message uh, gets passed on. Uh, A third criteria is minimal fairness. Uh, So law and justice evoke a particular way of governing in which interests are minimally protected. So independence and impartiality of decision makers is one aspect of fairness that is uh, uh, impossible to dissociate from the idea of uh, the rule of law, but also minimal fairness is reflected in the principle of um audi alter partem for more Latin, so uh, giving a chance for everyone to um, express their, uh, their claim and also the finality of decision. Once something has been decided, uh, it is uh, final. And finally, as a fourth and final element, um, I suggest that there must be a narrative of social justice produced by uh, or embraced by the court in order to call something law, to label something law, the group itself must claim the mantle of law. And our groups do many things uh, and and certainly don't call uh, all of these things law. So they have to aspire to apply law in order for us to be able to uh, describe it as such.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it
2: Um, but also ones that you demonstrate throughout the case studies, a lot of groups are already doing. Um, So it's an interesting sort of combination of the theory and the practice that you've so clearly distilled um, into these components. But a lot of the discussion so far, um, we've been sort of either presuming or actually talking about rebel courts or insurgent courts, sort of versus or in discussion with Um, state law and state courts. Um, And yet a really important contribution of the book is thinking about rebel courts and insurgent law in direct discussion with international law and international courts. So what space do you argue international law opens up for ideas of rebel justice? And just how big is that space?
1: So so I suggested earlier that the question of uh, rebel justice is not one of a a lawless space, but rather an overabundance of laws. And uh, public international law definitely is one of those laws that is present, uh, even in zones of rebel governance. And it is a very significant tool uh, which lawyers have to apply, invoke and apply uh, for all that it's worth in trying to make sense of this phenomenon. The other thing is that um, law is, I, I think, uh, uh, presents itself as a, a tool to mediate between different claims uh, advanced by competing parties. And that that is true of armed conflicts as well. So... Uh, you cannot approach uh what rebels are doing in isolation, uh putting blinders um, to block out what states are doing or how states will look upon what armed groups are doing in creating their own courts so it is so international law is a, a bridge that can connect non state armed groups and states uh, all the while acknowledging that public international law is the creation of states. It is a reaffirmation of the centrality of the sovereignty of states. And so it is not a a, a fairly um, apportioned uh, legal regime in which the interests of various parties in the context of uh, non-state armed conflicts will be represented. This is a pro-state legal regime. So given that... It's perhaps surprising how uh, there are avenues within existing and accepted rules of public international law that uh, can be invoked in order to uh, maintain uh, claims of the validity, uh, the legal validity of uh, the rebel administration of justice under public international law. And the the most important one for this purpose is Common Article 3 of the 1949 19 Geneva Convention, uh, which is sort of a mini-code uh, applicable to non-international armed conflicts ratified by every state uh, on the planet. And in this very short provision, there is a, um, a reference to um, the application of sentences issued by regularly constituted courts. And the the expression they're regularly constituted uh, is not further defined in relation to a specific legal order. So regular on the basis of what is a question that isn't answered in the Geneva Conventions. And um, the suggestion is that um, a, a court may be regularly constituted Uh, on the basis not only of state law, but also of rebel law. This is a a, a position which uh, some governments, like the United Kingdom government, explicitly accept. So the UK acknowledges that uh, rebel groups can have their own laws and regularly constitute courts. Other governments uh, reject this possibility uh, and I say that this is a uh, this does violence to uh, the intent behind Common uh, Article Three. It, it 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 leads to further questions as to how does a group regularly constitute a court? Um, it's unlikely that state law will allow for the possibility of a rebel group creating its own courts. So I, I'm not aware of any uh, uh, of any state in which there would be a statute that provides for this. So clearly, and this is a, a point to acknowledge at the outset, um, rebel courts will be created in violation of the domestic laws of the state on whose territory uh, the rebels are based. Now, the, that doesn't necessarily answer the question of the legality of these courts under public international law. Which is not uh, defined by the legality under uh, the domestic law of any given state. So uh, the argument is that um, a rebel group can regularly constitute a court if it creates, um, uh, if it decides uh, to establish a system for the administration of justice by way of a um, deliberate decision to create courts with a general mandate to apply a specific uh, set of laws. And what we're looking for here is um, uh, a situation in which uh, courts are not created in an ad hoc fashion, uh, where something happens and so a commander just decides, okay, well, I'm gonna deal with this. And so that uh, is hard to define as a regularly constituted court. On the other hand, many groups do decide um, in a centralized fashion to establish a system for the administration of justice. And they can do so by simply making that decision uh, without necessarily having to legislate in some kind of formalized uh, way. Um, So uh, I think that a a compelling argument can be made that Common Article 3 Uh, should be interpreted to allow the concept of a regularly constituted court to encompass not only courts of uh, states, but also courts of non-states. And I note in passing that there are issues about state courts that weren't regularly constituted either. So the question then is, how does a a non-group regularly constitute a court? Um, it's unlikely that state law will authorize an armed group to constitute its own courts. I'm unaware that there is any statute in, in any state that uh, would not look upon rebel courts as anything other than an illegal, than a violation of uh, uh, local laws creating courts. But on the other hand, what I'm looking at is the legality of rebel courts on the public international law which is not necessarily determined by their legality or illegality under uh, domestic law. So rebel groups can create courts by way of a, um, a deliberate decision to establish uh, a court with a general mandate to apply a fixed set of laws. So what we want to discard as regular as as not regularly constituted courts are ad hoc uh, practices or bodies that are just created to handle a particular situation or that are uh, improvised. I note in passing that in addition to the Geneva Convention and Common Article Three, international human rights law uh, also has a, a somewhat similar criteria when it speaks to uh, courts established by law. And, and some, somewhat similar analyses uh, can be offered under international human rights law. And I note that the European Court of Human Rights, in uh, the case of elasku versus Moldova and Russia, uh, did acknowledge and accept uh, the possibility that uh, courts created by non-state armed groups could be courts established by law. Uh, under the European Convention on Human Rights. So this is uh, not far-fetched. This is something that is already part of the uh, European jurisprudence.
2: That makes sense. Um, I think that it's a really interesting thing to think about the Geneva Conventions um, in this sort of context um, and does kind of open up a lot of things, um, as well as obviously raising some other questions, right? The idea that rebel courts are always going to be illegal domestically, um, even if there isn't a law against them, kind of by definition they are. So how then with the kind of space that there might be in the international level, but the space there definitely isn't at the national level, how do we understand rebel jurisdiction?
1: So once we entertain the possibility that there might be a rebel justice, then necessarily we have to speak to the idea of jurisdiction, which is a way of uh, circumventing uh, the reach of laws and the reach of uh, institutions like courts. So we have to address the the, the idea of uh, state, uh, of uh, rebel jurisdiction. And, and like uh, we, as we do for states, uh, we can approach this looking at um, uh, rebel jurisdiction, in territorial term, in subject matter terms, and in personal term. So, uh, um, in in terms of the territorial reach of uh, rebel jurisdiction, uh, the suggestion is that it should follow the reach of the effective authority of the state. So, uh, and, and here... Uh, We we often talk about uh, territorial control by armed groups, which I don't think is a helpful um, notion because it evokes an absoluteness to the authority that is really uh, a a reality uh, in the field. Um, What we're more interested in, and I think I'd be uh, advanced as um, uh, more connected to the idea of jurisdiction and, and rebel justice in general, is the ability of the armed groups to uh, do what it says it will do. So how effective can its authority uh, be? Um, so sometimes there are there are uh, territorial jurisdictions that are well defined. So in Sri Lanka during the Civil War, there was a border between the area under government control and the area under the control of the Tamil Tiger, and, and that looked a lot like an international border with checkpoints that were facing each other, and so it was quite easy to uh, see uh, the, the rebel territory uh, as it were. But rebel justice is in, in some ways not necessarily limited to that if the rebel uh, group can extend its authority uh, beyond that. And, and staying with the Tamil tigers uh, it's interesting to note that uh, one of the statutes that the Tigers adopted, the Child Protection Act, was applicable extraterritorially to sanction um, child abuse. And in that, the Tamil Tigers were following kind of a, a growing practice of states to uh, give themselves jurisdiction to punish individuals who commit child abuse abroad, like child sex tourism, for example, even in uh, states that do not have a tradition of uh, the universal jurisdiction of uh, their laws, universal application of their laws, as we often find in continental uh, Europe. So Canada, like like the UK, typically restricts uh, its criminal law to the the Canadian territory. But uh, the prosecution of child abuse abroad is one exception. And the Tigers did uh, the same thing. the, the the result is that often uh, territorially uh, there were overlapping jurisdictions where state law and state courts uh, overlap with rebel law and rebel courts in northeast Syria for example in, in rojava which is under the authority of um, the, uh, the the Ypg a Kurdish group there are both state courts and Uh, Kurdish courts that are not recognized by the state and and which apply different laws. And these operate in parallel, uh, in sort of an uneasy tango, Um, but uh, it it illustrates what is a a common reality of um, state and non-state institutions operating in parallel. Subject matter, um, we often talk about criminal law when we talk about what, uh, you know, how rebels are using courts, but it's important to acknowledge that uh, they are active in all areas of law, in private law, family law, labor law, administrative law, you name it. They, um, they are active uh, in it. There are particular questions, and some of them I look at in, uh, in the book, for example, a common practice is for rebels to punish uh, treason, punish giving information to the government, uh, this is a very, very dangerous uh, reality for any armed group and so they they are very it's pretty systematic that they punish that kind of behavior with the most severity. And uh, in the uh, uh, in the book I argue that uh, there is nothing in the idea of jurisdiction uh, or in international law generally that offers a basis to deny rebel groups the right to punish uh, informants or punish treason uh, in a way that is the mirror image of what governments do. All states claim the right to punish treason in war and typically punish it with the most severe punishment available uh, in that country. And so it would be odd for governments to claim the right to do that themselves and then to refuse. Uh, armed groups uh, the right to do so uh, as well. Uh, I, sometimes uh, armed groups also punish international crimes, like crimes against humanity, war crimes. Uh, it's quite uh, frequent. Finally, uh, personal jurisdiction, uh, again, is linked to the effective authority. So, clearly, a group's own fighters uh, are under its jurisdiction, as are civilians under its uh, authority. Uh, The question becomes more uh, fraught for uh, enemy fighters, including government soldiers. And my uh, view, my reading, is that for actions committed by government soldiers, for example, prior to being captured, well, at that time, they were not under the effective authority of the armed group, and therefore there is no basis for an armed group to claim to have Um, normative jurisdiction over what these soldiers are doing. The exception would being for war crimes, for example, because these are uh, crimes to which universal jurisdiction applies. And on that basis, uh, an armed group could uh, prosecute government soldiers for war crimes.
0: Mm. Mm.
2: Yeah, that... That becomes very complicated particularly when we think about um sort of which countries do and don't have jurisdiction um or pursue jurisdiction beyond their borders um, and how that plays in as well of course going back to kind of the international law level there's also implications when we think about the international criminal court quite specifically um and i was fascinated by this part of the book that thinks about the idea of insurgent complementarity when it comes to the International Criminal Court, in particular, recognizing rebel courts' jurisdiction or decisions. So I was wondering if you could help us think through to what extent insurgent c- complementarity at the ICC level is possible.
1: So, so the ICC is another place where uh, in the administration of justice by armed insurgent uh, is, is not merely uh, an interesting... or or academic, in quotes, uh, question, but something that has appeared on the court's docket and and put challenging issues to to the judges. And there are two different ways in which uh, rebel justice can come to the International Criminal Court. One is uh, complementarity, uh, and I'll come to that in a second, but I do want to flag a second way in which it could come, which is... um, Uh, as justification for uh, the use of violence, which is uh, being reproached to an accused as a war crime or a crime against um, uh, humanity. So, for example, uh, someone uh, could be accused of murder and their defense is that, well, they were executing a judgment issued by a regularly constituted uh, court. And there is one case in uh, Sweden uh, 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 related to a man named Omar Sakan, in, uh, who had been a, a rebel in Syria, which is somewhat similar to, um, uh, to this uh, scenario. Uh, in the ICC, uh, this is one issue in uh, a current case, uh, Al Asan. Uh, related to the activities of Ansar Dine, uh, Al Qaeda, and the Islamic Maghreb in Mali. And uh, Al Hassan uh, is accused of carrying out decisions of uh, the Islamic courts uh, in uh, Timbuktu, run by the rebels. And so the ICC will have to make a determination of whether these courts were regularly constituted pursuant to Common Article 3 of um, the, uh, the Geneva Convention. Uh, in addition to that, complementarity is a different way in which re- the rebel administration of justice is engaged uh, at uh, the ICC. So uh, under the Rome Statute, the jurisdiction of the ICC is limited by the principle of complementarity such that it has jurisdiction only in situations in which local prosecution uh, is not possible because the local authority is unwilling or unable. Now uh, those paying attention will have noticed that I I, I abstain from saying that the local state is unwilling or unable because uh, this is precisely the question of whether it is only the local state or whether other local authorities like or groups can validly uh, investigate and prosecute crimes which would otherwise fall under the jurisdiction of the ICC. And, and so in part, this is um, an idea of the primacy of local jurisdiction and in part it is the reflection of uh, the principle of nebis in idem or double uh, jeopardy so that if a person already was the subject, the target of an investigation or prosecution, then that person shouldn't be prosecuted again for the same crime. And, and this, uh, this is an issue that perhaps surprisingly has already uh, been dealt with in a preliminary manner by uh, various panels at uh, the ICC. So in one context related to an ongoing investigation Uh, in uh, the situation in uh, South Ossetia in uh, Georgia, the issue arose as to whether uh, local prosecutions by um, uh, non-state authorities uh, in areas under the control of the rebels uh, uh, ought to be considered as um, uh, possibly preventing Uh, ICC jurisdiction on the basis of complementarity and in that decision it's a very preliminary decision the prosecutor simply said that there was no basis in article 17 of uh, the Rome Statute to apply um, uh, the the principle of complementarity to non-state courts and and the court uh, the preliminary chamber simply agreed and and didn't really go into uh, an analysis. The question was a little bit more central in a different case uh, against um, al warfali uh, related to uh, Libya and uh, um, a National Libyan uh, Army which is despite its name not a, a state uh, entity but rather uh, a non-state armed group uh, commanded by General Haftar and uh, a variety of war crimes Uh, were alleged to have been committed by Mr. Al-Wafali and the group claimed that it had investigated those crimes and uh, concluded that there was no basis for a prosecution, thus possibly meeting uh, the requirements of uh, Article 17 uh, in in, in, uh, triggering complementarity. Uh, In that case, the preliminary chamber simply found that there was no tangible factual evidence of a serious investigation, and that um, in any case, uh, uh, you know, there, there would be no complementarity. So it, it doesn't actually get to the legal issue of whether, if there had been a um, full investigation that met the standards that the ICC requires under Article 17, uh, it, it doesn't actually state that therefore there would be, uh, complementarity would operate and prevent ICC jurisdiction. So in both cases, you know, the, the issue is flagged as a real issue and in, in the first case, the, the, an answer uh, is, is given in a negative but with very little analysis. And in the second, it is suggested that possibly uh, it could uh, trigger complementarity, but we do not have an affirmative statement to that effect.
2: Mm. Interesting. We'll see what the third case brings up then. it um, <laughs> be quite interesting, really, to see that. So thank you for essentially preparing us to understand and analyze the third time that it's flagged up. Um, but of course... There are still some other things in the book I would like to get to, so we'll move on from complementarity for now. Um, And I'd like to come back to the domestic level, um, because we've sort of talked a bit about this, right? the idea that um, rebel courts are essentially illegal, that state courts or national courts are um, not going to be uh, happy or really involved in discussions around jurisdiction and that kind of thing. But I was wondering if you could maybe give us um, one or two sort of practical examples of how states um, react when there are rebel groups who seem to have competing jurisdictions in their territory.
1: So... There is a certain sense that, of course, states are never going to recognize that the courts of the rebels against which they're fighting are doing anything other than criminality, terrorism, banditry, and so on and so forth. And and this is indeed uh, exactly the way in which uh, government officials speak about rebel courts if they ever uh, speak uh, to that practice. Um, so there, there are a, a limited number of uh, domestic uh, court decisions that have m- mentioned in passing or considered uh, rebel courts. And one example that's um, interesting is a decision of the Colombian Supreme Court against a former commander called um, uh, Davila, uh, who was... Um, uh, accused of um, essentially supervising a popular assembly in which a man um, was accused of uh, sexually molesting an eight-year-old girl. And uh, the, um, uh, the assembly condemned, found the man guilty and uh, condemned him to be killed. And he was, in fact, killed. And Villa was accused of murder. Uh, because all this was done under his uh, authority. And the Supreme Court of Colombia, in that case, says that, you know, has very sweeping words in uh, discarding any legal dimension to this these proceedings, and uh, essentially saying that this was uh, an act of terror, and that it would not have been any different if Arteta had just showed up in the village and just uh, executed the men without any sort of uh, formality. So that's the discourse. How, 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 how does it happen in reality? Well, the reality is more uh, murky despite the clarity of the rejection by all governments in, in all armed conflicts that I've uh, look, at, look at. So we, uh, mostly this, the, the situation arises uh, post-conflict. And uh, there are issues during conflicts, but these are uh, they're, they're less frequent and, and more difficult to uh, to document. But after conflicts, um, there are situations where the rebels were essentially in charge for years, sometimes decades, and uh, there's a, just a, a certain uh, uh, weight or inertia to the life of the law, that cannot be rolled back. And you simply cannot undo thousands of decisions taken over years or, uh, or decades, uh, even if the authority um, taking these decisions or authorizing these decisions is said to have been uh, illegitimate. And we have a similar phenomenon under international humanitarian law related to uh, belligerent occupation. So the, the war might be unlawful, so Russia might be occupying uh, Kherson uh, in the most illegal uh, manner, uh, but it is still a situation of belligerent occupation in which Russia is recognized the right to oversee the administration of justice in Kherson. And, and if Ukraine recaptures uh, Kherson, uh, it is um, not uh, evident that all the decisions issued by Russian courts uh, or, or by courts supervised or under the authority of the Russian occupier uh, are marked by illegality. I mean, we, we would still have to see whether it, it was an independent and impartial tribunal and whether procedural fairness was observed and, and all of that. Uh, but uh, the, the mere a basis of authority in an occupation that is kind of illegitimate under jus ad bellum does not translate into the legal invalidity ab initio of all judicial decisions uh, under belligerent occupation. So the argument is that the same obtains for armed groups. And um, you, um, uh, you can't undo it all, even if you wished uh, that you could, because if a judgment found that this piece of land was owned by that person, uh, a rebel court found that, and that person sold it to the another one, and, and so on and so forth, and then there's a chain, you cannot go back and undo this whole chain of, uh, of event. So the reality is that despite the, um, the very uh, strenuous rejection by uh, governments, um, rebel law does live on. Uh, and, and is recognized not rarely uh, in some ways uh, uh, by the official law of the state. One example uh, I found in uh, Sri Lanka in the northeast, uh, where uh, when I was in, in the capital Colombo, I, I asked that question to, to lawyers and uh, to say, you know, what, what happens to, to these court decisions of the, of the tiger courts? And they, they just looked at me uh, with a uh, kind of disbelief that I might suggest that <laughs> this was a piece of paper that was worth anything. But uh, some hundred kilometers further to the northeast uh, in uh, the uh, Tamil speaking um, peninsula around uh, Jaffna, I found exactly that cases before the courts of Sri Lanka in which um, uh, parties pull out a court decision of the courts of the Tamil Tiger, which is adduced as evidence and accepted by the court. And so this is a reality that seems, in that case, unexamined by the Supreme Court of uh, Sri Lanka, but it suggests that that sort of the irresistible force of uh, simply the existence of these um, decisions. The There is a a very interesting um, strand of jurisprudence from the United States Supreme Court in the uh, post-Civil War uh, Reconstruction era, which had to deal with decisions of Confederate courts, courts of the rebellious uh, South. And after an initial... blanket rejection of all decisions of rebel uh, courts, of confederate courts, the Supreme Court came to the conclusion that, in fact, it could not realistically do that, and it adopted a more mediated uh, position that uh, discarded uh, essentially decisions that furthered the insurgency directly, but that validated all other decisions. So a divorce judgment was still valid, but a conviction by a Confederate court uh, for treason because someone provided information to the Union, well, obviously that would not be uh, validated by uh, uh, by the courts of the state after the end of the war.
2: Hmm. But a very interesting example of exactly that idea that you can't roll back time, um, that even if the rebels at some point go away, um, it might seem really nice academically to kind of just turn over a new page or rip out those pages and go back to what was there before, um, but that doesn't actually really work in practice. So thank you for kind of explaining to us what that looks like um, in the cases that you've investigated. Um, And I do have one last thing I'd love to throw in, and it does perhaps seem odd to throw this one in um, towards the end, but it was really interesting, and the book does, of course, cover it. Um, but the idea that there's actually a whole another group of actors here in terms of recognizing rebel courts, and um, there's the national courts that they operate within the same jurisdiction, the contested jurisdiction, and the international level, for example, the ICC. Um, but you also talk about how there are some circumstances where rebel courts, rebel justice can be recognized by third party states. So can you tell us a bit about what those circumstances are and what the implications are of this involvement?
1: So I I mentioned uh, a few minutes ago the case of Omar Sakan in Sweden, and this is an incredible case uh, that um, uh, was decided by the courts of Sweden uh, five or six years ago. Uh, Sakan was a fighter, was in a free Syrian army for a very short uh, period of time, and uh, only uh, four days after arriving from Italy to join the rebellion, he was asked by, or he was ordered by his commander to join a firing squad to execute a group of men who uh, were captured Syrian government soldiers who, he was told, had been found guilty of rape and murder by a court of the Free Syrian Army, uh, composed of uh, former judges uh, of the Syrian regime who had defected to the insurgency and who had applied the Syrian criminal code, uh, which does provide for death penalty in case of uh, murder and rape, and um, there was a video made of the execution and Sakan. Uh, had his face uncovered. And uh, shortly thereafter, after this uh, event, Sakan decided that uh, being a fighter wasn't really for him. So he he, uh, left Syria, made his way to Sweden, and claimed refugee status, omitting any mention of his military experience. And he was granted that status. And some years later, three years later, the New York Times... Uh, got a hand on the video of the execution and posted it and someone recognized Sakan in Sweden and he was accused of murder. Uh, And Sakan did not deny that it was uh, he on the video shooting a man tied up on the ground before him and killing him but he said this was uh, a judgment. So this put the court in an awkward position, uh, the the Stockholm uh, District Court, because the judge had to decide whether the, this was a valid legal claim, in, in not just in fact, but also in law. And uh, the court it did indeed conclude that the Free Syrian Army could create its own court in a regular manner, so that these were regular constituted courts pursuant to Common Article 3 of the Geneva Conventions. But in that case, uh, the court concluded that um, there was no due process uh, and it was an extremely quick uh, trial. And on that basis, Sakan was convicted to life in prison. So this one instance where um, a, a third state, by way of, of its courts, was confronted with um, an absolute obligation to pronounce upon the legal validity of uh, the existence of, and the operation of uh, the courts of an armed group in another country. There are a a number of other examples that one could uh, give about uh, courts in Texas uh, being asked to, or being required to determine uh, the legal status of a cargo of oil that the Kurdish uh, regional government in Northern Iraq was claiming against the Iraqi central uh, government. A uh, somewhat similar case uh, in the courts of South Africa related to a shipment of phosphate coming from the Western Sahara, which had been authorized under the laws of Morocco, but which was um, not authorized under the, um, uh, the laws of uh, Polisario. Uh, so there are, these, these things uh, do occur. And uh, I might add in the same vein that the European Court of Human Rights Uh, has recognized a certain duty to cooperate with um, uh, the uh, the authority of an unrecognized regime. In the case of uh, Cyprus versus Turkey, it said that Cyprus had to collaborate with a uh, a police investigation and judicial prosecution uh, in northern Cyprus. Um, Alternatively, that in a case dealing with uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, that Uh, the rule on the requirement of the exhaustion of local remedies uh, covered courts of uh, a non-state armed group. And if those courts were effective, then a petitioner had to exhaust those rebel remedies before being able to bring a petition to the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg. So it is happening, uh, but in a very fragmented and, and largely invisible way. Uh, in different parts of the world.
2: Mm, But yet again, another thing that you're helping us understand so that the next time it pops up, um, we have a better understanding of what's actually happening and kind of what the implications are, um, which is really quite interesting given sort of the varied nature of the way these things seem to come up, um, even just from that range of examples. Um, So then as my final question, really, um, I was wondering... Given that this book was absolutely massive, like I cannot imagine how much work um, has gone into producing this on the theoretical side, on the practical side, going to the places, doing these interviews. Um, so I'm sort of hoping that part of the answer to my next question is sleep. Um, but since the book has been published, um, is there anything in particular you're currently working on or working on next that you might be able to tell us a little bit about what you're up to now?
1: Uh sure, sleep is, is a good idea but um, <laughs> uh, uh, nothing related to the administration of justice by armed groups I, I'm, I'm happy to say um, but I, I have I have one project that actually looks at uh, the, the the creation by indigenous communities of uh, justice practices in uh, Canada under Canadian constitutional law and uh, looking at the comparative practice of uh, places like Bolivia and Colombia where um, they embrace a plurinational constitutionalism that includes a formal recognition of uh, indigenous communities or indigenous people's rights to set up their own uh, courts. And I might look at uh, Greenland uh, as well. So you you might see some continuity uh, in, in some of the themes that uh, animate this uh, this new project uh with the the uh, the rebel groups but um it's uh, uh you know, it, it's somewhat less um, uh, less uh, uh, dangerous kind of fieldwork that is associated okay. with this new project
2: that seems reasonable <laughs> um but still a very interesting project so thank you for sharing a little snippet with us um as a reminder to our listeners, the book that we've been discussing is titled Rebel Courts, the Administration of Justice by Armed Groups, out from Oxford University Press in 2021. Renee, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us.
1: It's a pleasure.